another edition of the Populous Papers, where the elixir vitae awaits your indulgence. Kramer here, and I just got back from a trip to Washington, D.C. Went to the PCCC, which is a training event that brought together 450 of the boldest progressives in the nation. I tell you, nothing beats having that kind of energy in one room. Whew, the place was on fire. I checked out the Jefferson Memorial and noticed his quote that laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more enlightened, institutions must advance to keep pace with the times. And this is the author of the Declaration of Independence we're talking about. And I love his notion of an ongoing enlightenment. The blossoming of our consciousness. Like an unfolding rose. So what would the Jeffersonian approach be when, just in the first four months of 2018, we got 162 dead Americans because of mass shootings? You know, even Scalia, the most right-wing Supreme Court justice, at least in my lifetime, he spoke out for gun control. Uh, I believe his exact words were, uh, this is in the Heller case, Like most rights, the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Limitation is supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. End quote. So I don't know where these gun fetishists get off trying to stop any kind of reform. It always kind of bothered me that I could uh, buy a gun at a younger age than I could buy a beer, which is part of how you know that it's a fetish. I mean, not only do they have their own Pornhub channel now, but the firearms themselves are like these pagan fertility slabs. They even go bang. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone be all, oh no, I'm pro-gun, like as a way of shutting down the conversation. Or something like, Ah, it's not about Trump. I just vote Republican because I like guns. Well, <laughs> I like guns too, but everything's got to have limits. I mean, just think, if free speech purists had their way, then snuff movies would be legal. And did you know that it's actually considered progressive to be pro-life? That's right. I'm against the death penalty. And that's what the original reference was to. So let's reclaim the pro-life movement and put representatives in that protect life over profits. Talking about stricter pollution standards, universal health care, paid leave, more sex education, widely available forms of contraception, and abortion, because countries that have safe and legal abortion access have lower maternal mortality rates. Up to 50%, in fact. And that's straight from the UN. And speaking of abortion, did you hear the latest with the Satanic Temple? They just opened another lawsuit against the state of Missouri because of what they put women through who are trying to get legal abortions, like being forced to read religious pamphlets during a three-day waiting period. And what about all the women across the country who have to take days off of work because there's no Planned Parenthood around? You gotta pay for a hotel and drive hundreds of miles, sometimes all the way to Mexico, and then you could end up bleeding to death on the way back. And if you live in a red state, hey, the Democratic Party's leadership really screwed you 
because rather than investing that money into local infrastructure, they chose to take nearly a billion dollars and just give it away to a small handful of consultants. <sighs> Makes me sick! So thank goodness the progressives are taking that party back. Are you aware that this generation has a rendezvous with destiny? Hey, could be fun. <laughs> I saw that quote at the FDR memorial. He was arguably the most progressive president, despised by the economic royalists, as he called them. But it was his cousin Teddy that formed the progressive party. I always thought it was called the Bull Moose Party, but apparently that was just the logo. And his nickname... After that time, he got shot and insisted on finishing his speech before even going to see a doctor. Can you believe that? TR also is the one who gave us the square deal decades before the New Deal and single-handedly caught two horse thieves after an epic 200-mile chase. Now that's the kind of progressive lineage I'm talking about. Also, I have to mention Thomas Paine, who tried to include a clause in the Constitution that would guarantee a universal basic income. He was light years ahead of his time. And the Mormons, believe it or not, had a socialist economy under Brigham Young, and that may have even been what saved them from starvation in 1855. As soon as they made it to the Salt Lake Valley, Young made it quite clear that nobody was there to get rich. He told them, quote, There shall be no private ownership of the streams that come out of the canyons, nor the timber that grows on the hills. Deeds belong to the people, all the people. Everybody was to obtain the essential comforts of life, as he called them. Kind of reminds me of The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. A world without money. How cool would that be? Many hands make light work. You know what? I was thinking um, it was actually wrestling that turned me into a political junkie. You remember The Million Dollar Man? What a dick! He eventually became a tag team with Erwin R. Scheister, a.k.a. IRS, and they called themselves Money Incorporated. It was a way of letting the audience know that the 1%, the millionaires, and the billionaires, and the IRS, actually get along great. Also, there was the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, epiphany. You ever been on that ride at Disneyland? I don't know about Disney World, but near the end, you find yourself stuck between these two cannons, pointed right at each other. And there's drunk dudes with guns everywhere. Everything's fucked up. Place is burning down, there's a barrel about to fall on you, and I'm sitting there in this little boat thinking, you know what? We did this. This is our fault. We've put these maniacs in charge of all of our resources, and they're holding them right over our heads. They're drunk on power, and the cannons could blow at any time. It's out of control. Turns out that ride was designed right around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, too. So... Who knows what those Imagineers were thinking. Also, it was the last ride that uh, Walt worked on before he died. So you got Disneyland, you got wrestling, and you got punk rock. Because in 97, I saw Jello Biafra interviewed on Bill Maher. And uh, he brought up the idea of a maximum wage, which everybody kind of dismissed as a form of communism. But it turns out those were the original wage laws. They called it profit sharing. And it worked. Who in their right mind needs a billion dollars? I mean, maybe you could stop at 999 million and then start putting it back into the roads that your workers use every day and the public education that trained them to work for you in the first place. And imagine the wave of entrepreneurialism that could be unleashed by Medicare for all. I mean, how many people spend nearly their entire lives working awful jobs just because they can't risk going without health insurance? 
We gotta stop burdening employers with the health needs of their entire workforce. And once we do, so many people will finally be able to take those kinds of risks and open their own businesses or just enjoy their lives. But if the wealthiest nation on earth can't even provide the most basic services to its citizens, then we have no business calling ourselves a superpower. Could also argue it's a case of national security. I mean, not only do sick people make for a pretty weak home defense, but medical debt is still the biggest reason people's homes end up going into foreclosure in this country. Also a lot of talk of UBI going around, and a lot of people are forgetting that Alaska already does it in the form of a reverse income tax. It's linked to their oil production. It's a form of profit sharing. And if we could retrofit every dwelling, especially right here in the Southwest where the solar potential is so great, with these UV panels that are exponentially more efficient than any kind of solar paneling and give people money for the energy that's produced on site. We'd be net positive in no time. Uh, Stockton, California has been experimenting with the UBI. Uh, apparently they got sick and tired of throwing all this money down the drain trying to entice tourists to come out. Uh, and instead they're just like, hey, forget about that. Let's just invest that money right back into the community where it belongs. Imagine that. It's come to my attention that people actually live longer in socialist countries. There's less income disparity, more social mobility, less unemployment, more public transit, and the banks are more stable. So hey, if you want to live out the American dream, move to Canada. <laughs> they even have lower corporate taxes up there somehow. But the U.S. is a surprisingly socialist nation. We've got police, military, firefighters, public schools, uh, libraries, hospitals, transit services, all that good stuff. If you really want to be a big government-loving environmentalist wacko, look into what led to rural electrification. And things like union pensions, the GI Bill, minimum water quality standards, uh, regulations on meatpacking, insurance for your money in case the banks go down again, building codes so that you don't die from walking into your house. These socialist elements help give everybody the opportunity to contribute, and it's important not to turn them over to the for-profit corporations. It makes us less sovereign. And there's no transparency with private companies. Even worse, there's no way to vote them out. I, uh, I had someone tell me recently that we should get rid of the post office. Nah, we don't need that stuff. We got FedEx now. <laughs> well, guess what? If you live in a really rural part of America, FedEx isn't even going to take your package all the way. The post office has to complete the last mile of service because it's not profitable enough for the private companies to go there. And if you're in Alaska, nobody would get mail without the post office. Um, did you hear about Bernie going postal? Um, I mean, this has actually been his thing for a while now, but why not let the post office issue short-term loans? You know, it's already the cheapest place to get money orders. And I'd be a lot more comfortable going through one of them than a predatory payday loan place. Um, most of which are actually owned by Bank of America, it turns out. But beyond protecting what little social safety net we have left, I would submit to you that the greatest danger facing us is authoritarianism. Because the more authoritarian of a regime you have, the more devastating they are to the environment, to the press, you name it. According to the Climate Vulnerability Monitor, pollution actually kills more people around the world than wars, murders, and traffic accidents combined. 
That's killer capitalism. These bastards avoid paying taxes for decades. And then when something like Hurricane Harvey happens, the public system is all drained out and all of the burden is put on volunteers and charities. And the worst man-made disasters are always the ones in which unions have little to no involvement. So think of socialism as the ring in a boxing match, trying to keep the fight within the ropes. Because the free market doesn't give a fuck. Oh, and look at this madness that's happening with the Sinclair merger. I just heard on my way home about some bridge that collapsed somewhere, I think, in Montana. And because they had no local media left, there wasn't even really a way to warn people. It was a nightmare. So you gotta decentralize the press. And you can't let the same companies that make bombs report the news. Break them up. Break that shit up. And on this subject of protecting the press... Do you remember when Dana Carvey was doing bang-up impressions of George H.W. Bush? And he was so good at it, he did a spot on Ross Perot as well. The President of the United States himself actually invited Carvey to come out and spend a night in the White House. And then Will Ferrell did a pretty decent W, and he got invited to the White House too. So these guys who made laughing stocks out of the Bushes were honored for their work and celebrated... And I think that's pretty cool, at least compared to Trump, who flipped the fuck out on Alec Baldwin and even called for Saturday Night Live to be taken off the air. What a scumbag. Trump's the worst of both worlds, monarchy and organized crime. Talk about mob rule. You know, these loyalty oaths he's making everyone take. They're like straight out of the mafia playbook. And they're a major reason, I suspect, why so many of these State Department jobs are just sitting there vacant. And you know Trump's mentor was Roy Cohn, the self-loathing Jewish gay man that made his fortune as a mob lawyer, and he had the Rosenbergs executed. Al Pacino played that guy in Angels in America on HBO. Throw it on! One of my students asked me in class recently uh, whether or not there was a green tea party. <laughs> I know there's a coffee party, and they're doing some good work. But it got me thinking about the magical properties of colors and how they're used in political branding. Animals, too. Turns out the original Democratic mascot was a rooster. Oh man, I'd much rather have a rooster than a donkey. So when you hear about the blue wave, I'd like you to keep in mind that blue symbolizes stability and intelligence. It's the ocean and the sky. And also one of the newer colors, which is part of why some people saw that dress differently. It's a calming color, which is why a lot of therapists' offices are blue. You got your Blue Lodge and Freemasonry, but very few make it to blue. I mean, red is so much more intense, albeit fleeting. It's all about fight or flight. Nightclubs use a lot of red lighting. Meat is treated with red coloring to stimulate that reptilian part of your brain. It's the color of rage and war. But remember, the only thing more powerful than a fire is a flood. Water always conquers fire. Anyway, unlike politics, which are all about power, democracy is all about community. So this is why I showed up to the PCCC to meet with some of the progressive candidates out there that are stepping up and protecting our democracy, trying to bring it back to its populist roots. So first up on the line with me now is Dr. Julia Varnell Sargent, who's running for state senate in Colorado's 30th district. She earned degrees in economics, computer science, systems engineering, and spent 20 years, over 20 years, 
working in aerospace and defense. She's authored dozens of articles for Daily Coast, one of my favorites being The Economies of the Thirteen Colonies, or Why the Founders Twisted God to Line Their Purses. So tell us a little bit about your background in politics. When I was a kid, my dad was a big fundraiser for politicians. He ran the money side of a number of campaigns, including Governor John Love, Hmm. who was a giant governor to Coloradans back in the day. And he used to go and collect these $5, you know, $5 donations from person to person to person. Mm -hmm. One day I said to him, when I asked him why he spent so much time trying to get such small donations, he said, when a person gives you $5, remember this was the 60s, Hmm. they have given you a dinner off their table. You have their vote. And every one of those dinners comes with a unique set of priorities, interests, and desires. So if you get a lot of dinners, you have a cross-section of what the constituents want. A good representative listens to that and tries to reconcile as much of it as he can to maximize what he is doing for his people. So years later, when I returned to Colorado and quickly joined the Republican Party, I was all set to go out and get those dinners. The party chairwoman told me, oh, we don't do that anymore. That's outdated. We have big donors who fund us. We just go out and campaign. The money is taken care of. So I told my dad that, and he said, then I guess the constituency has just switched from the people to those big donors. Mm-hmm. So I want to start a kind of a donate a dinner drive where people donate what they would spend on a dinner, and in the envelope or the site where they donate, write down what their biggest issues are, and then tabulate and chart them, publish the results, and use them to help determine my legislation. That's so great. You like that idea? Absolutely. Well, that was one of the most brilliant points I learned at uh, the PCCC was that, you know, as representatives, our job is not to be experts in anything. No. Our job is to uplift the narratives of our constituents. So what I've been doing is I've been going from place to place. Instead of giving a speech, I'll sit down and say, I want to just talk to you guys because we spend too much time with politicians telling us instead of politicians listening to us (laughs) yeah and when i talked to the unions i said now what i'm going to need from you first now as i'm trying to win this election i need your help because your first name is organized and douglas county needs to be organized and who understands infrastructure better than a union right once i'm in i'm going to ask you to send me to the right people in your hierarchy so that we can crap legislation together because I won't know if I am inserting unintended consequences that will harm you unless you help me. Hmm. So I'm going to turn to you to help me write these bills. And today I was at a, um, uh, assisted living place. And I said, I'm going to turn to you guys to help me write legislation for, um, senior citizens. Excellent. And when I go to talk to other people, I tell them, you got to help me write this stuff because I don't care how smart you are. You can't know all of the twists and turns of life in, in, in different issues and how they affect you. Sure. I nope. have to have you guys help me write it. Mm-hmm. And they've all promised to help me write it. I mean, actually write it. I don't just mean, here, I'm going to get it written and then hand it out to you to read and, and rubber stamp. 
you've got to help me include the nuances that make your life difficult. It's all about the details. And it is. Teamwork makes the dream work. Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> and what's another one of your positions? I want to see states contract with drug manufacturers to make out-of-patent life-saving saving drugs. Hmm. So that these Grellies or whatever, however you pronounce his name, can't go buying up whoever makes them right? and then jacking up the price and making the people who depend on them for their very lives suffer. Insulin has been made for decades. Why does it cost, why does insulin and its assorted um, uptake medication cost $2,000 a month? Right, and didn't the Department of Defense discover insulin or how to apply right. it. Right. So why is Crowley going to why are these why are these these companies going to profiteer off of something that costs very little to make but yeah. they're charging that much because they can. People forget the military is one of the most socialist institutions there is. I mean, collective. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So these are some things, these are some ideas that I would like us to use this this um, connection with. Right. Let's start developing, let's, let's look at these problems and let's start developing solutions and writing bills that we will carry when we win. Yes, this is only the beginning. This was just the start. You got that right. Excellent. Now, what about the White House ghosts? Could you tell us about that? I can tell you about that. That's so funny. <laughs> you know, I was a Republican before I became a Democrat. Right. And I was an active I was an active Republican, and given who my dad was, I was up there. Um, when I we we had gone out of state for a while to work, and when we moved back into Highlands Ranch, the first thing I did was connected with the Republican Party because they were friends of my dad's, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was one of their. I was the um, treasurer of Republican women, and I was um, the co-chair of HW's Speakers Bureau in Colorado hmm. because I was trying to get over not liking to speak in front of people. Oh, sure. Well, I teach speech and debate and it blows yeah. my mind that that's still considered the number one phobia is fear of public speaking. Well, I wasn't afraid of it. I just don't like, I, I'm, I'm an extreme introvert. Me too. And I'm not crazy about crowds. It, it takes, I don't used have to. the option. Pardon me. It, it definitely takes getting used to. It, they drain me, hmm. and I'm having to overcome that. And you know, because running for offices, taking these offices, and taking the country back is more important than my petty fears or my petty dislikes. That's right. So anyhow, I had a bunch. Of, I was interviewed by the Koch brothers group uh, leadership council really to become one of their um, candidates, but I wasn't one who was going to accept all of their little notions and so they rejected me big time <laughs> Doesn't and as a result me. my dad was not happy with me uh, but anyway so i still had you know acquaintances i won't say friends but i'll say acquaintances from those days and one of them was very very active in the um, never trump movement and and that work that they were doing back in the in at their convention if you recall mm-hmm she right. was interviewed on Rachel Maddow and stuff like that. Cool. But 
I ran into her and I was talking to her about how brave she was to do the Never Trump and how right she was. And then we started talking about how often Trump goes to golf. And she said, well, that's not the real reason he's going to Mar-a-Lago, you know. I said, what? And she said, no. Um, there's a great deal of talk in, in the inner Republican circles about how he's afraid of the White House ghosts. <laughs> and so we had that conversation. And then I went back and I looked. And, yeah, you know, they have people. I, White House ghosts was kind of a new thing to me. And so as I researched it, I found out, yes. There were people who actually believed there were White House ghosts, and yes, indeed, this guy was obviously. Um, it's, so anyway, I thought that was funny. Definitely. Well, I thought, I mean, when it first occurred to me, I was talking about it with a friend, and we were just like, you know, Bush and Obama got so much shit for spending so much yep. time on vacation, playing golf and whatnot. But now, thank goodness they're keeping Trump out of the White House. <laughs> like, this guy's well, so unstable. Keep him calm, whatever it takes, you know? Get him out of there. Yep. Just until we can find someone better. But I just thought that the, the reason he was leaving so much was funny. And do you feel like having a conservative background gives you an advantage over your opponent? Oh, and who are you running against? My conservative background, the upper hand it gives me is that I know what they're up to. And I can tell other people. Yeah. Um, who am I running against? I am running against a product of the Coke machine. Uh-oh. Another Coke Oh, yeah. Uh, very much so. <laughs> and that's why when I did my original announcement that you can see in Daily Coast, I considered myself Don Quixote tilting against a Coke machine. Ah, I like it. Um, yeah, we had the same thing just happen here in Los Angeles. It was so hard getting any resources on this local election last year. And, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it turns out that the Coke creation just barely edged out. Um, th this was for school board. The, um, the progressive, the one that was going to help invest in public schools. And now the uh, L.A. County School Board is majority in favor of the charter school agenda. And uh, between that oh. and the homeschool nuts and all the parochial schools, I mean, I'm all about variety, but the way they're just gutting the public schools out here, it's just disgusting. The, the goal is, as you know, to take all of that investment <clears throat> that we put into the public schools and give it to the friends of Betsy. Mm -hmm. But um, we ousted the Koch Brothers School Board in our last election in November, which is what gives me hope. Right on. It was wonderful. And when the numbers started coming in, I thought they were reversed. Huh. Because we beat them two to one. Oh, wow. In this very red area. See, people well, that's were it. mad. What? Uh, yeah, that's it. That's the blue wave. Focusing oh, on... people were mad at what was happening to our schools. With good reason. My story is a story about community. And I was educated in public schools. My brothers were educated. The only non-public school for me was my Ph.D. at DU. Hmm. Other than that, it was all public schools. That's great. And I think I got a pretty good education. Yeah, well, and that's what I've been hearing. The more I'm talking to people, um, it turns out in a lot of those very small towns out there, especially in red areas, the public schools are the pride and joy of the communities. The neighborhood school was the source of community. And understand, I'm in a, I'm in a major suburb of Denver. 
there is no reason for my area to be red except that as it was being developed, the Koch brothers were working with the developers to establish the Republican Party and give it infrastructure and funding. Mm. And they've continued to fund it ever since. Whereas we have no infrastructure, and since everybody realized that this was going to be all Republican, um, we get written off as non-viable, so we get no funds. It's a well-oiled machine that we're up against. It's what I call the Coke machine. It's extremely well-oiled. It is extremely well-financed. And as soon as the Democrats start writing it off, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Hmm. I would be willing to put money down that if we registered all everybody in 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 District 30, we would have more Democrats than Republicans. But they don't even bother to register because it's hopeless. <laughs> well, so I'm using my campaign to establish a fundraising database and an infrastructure for my county. Okay. And what office are you running for again? State Senate. And what's your website? It's Julia for, for COStateSenate30.com. Julia for CO State State Senate 30.com. Julia for, for CO State Senate 30.com. And it. my email address, if people want it, is Julia at SoColorado.com. Perfect. So Colorado meaning So Colorado. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm SoCal just to differentiate us from NoCal. <laughs> yeah, well, I know those two because I was in Simi Valley and then I was up in, in Milpitas. Ah, okay. So, so I know, you know, Sunnyvale, I worked in Sunnyvale. Mm -hmm. So I know those areas very well. Simi and my Valley. kid brother's in Malibu. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, but, not um, cool. Do you know who his best friend is? Oh, no, don't tell me. Steve Wynn. <laughs> uh, a big supporter of your campaign, I assume. <laughs> I'm not even telling him I'm running. <laughs> yeah, don't bother. I mean, he's the one who could donate, but no, I don't need it. I don't need to hear it. No, well, not worth it. And like you said, um, you know, the turnout, I think that when we run on economic populism, um, yeah, these red areas, they see what the bigger issues are. You know, these people, they know what's up. They can see the writing on the wall. And um, yeah, this is this is where we build coalitions. That's right. That's what it's all about. So that's what we're doing. Did you uh, did you ever check out the Reagan Center out there in Simi Valley? No, it, it wasn't built yet. Oh, OK. That is pretty new, isn't it? Um, yeah. Remember, I was in Simi Valley when Reagan got elected and then we went directly up to Milpitas in 81. So Reagan was still president. Gotcha. So, uh, what do you think Reagan would have thought of, uh, the United States becoming a client state of Russia? I think he would be an apoplectic <laughs> as stupid as he was. At least he would have recognized that. Oh boy. How far we've come. Every time we elect an actor, we wind up with a disaster. Now, talk to us about corporate feudalism. Corporate feudalism is a term that I made up. And the reason is because as I look at the structure given, first I should tell you, do you remember when Tim Kaine was talking about his 
that uh, professor of economics that had inspired him so much. Oh, right. That was my advisor. Oh. And that was the first time I ever really learned of anything about unions and and things like that. I had always been brought up thinking unions were evil. <laughs> and then John Kuhlman started talking about them and talking about small guy standing up against the big guy. And you probably read my story, There's Only One David. Mm-hmm. So um, that a lot of that stuff and a lot of the stuff I talk about in terms of economics came directly from John Kuhlman. Gotcha. But... I noticed that the corporate structure that they are setting up is very similar to what I was reading about when I was doing my research on the on on slavery on the slavery thing. Mm-hmm. I noticed that they were very much alike in how in their setup. Right. And so, so that's where I came up with the term. And can you kind of break down for us just a little bit about how this connects to the importance of protecting unions? The fact is that it was the unions. It was people who were able to actually take... First of all, you have to understand the factors of production. You have the materials, you have the labor, and then you have the enterprise. Hmm. Those are factors of production. Right. And when the feudal lords control the materials and and they have the enterprise, the only thing you have that you can control is your own labor. But one against the big guy, for example, in the feudal times, if a peasant didn't like being controlled by by the lord or the nobleman, whoever had owned the property he was working, he could leave and they just replace him with another one. <laughs> but when the guilds, when they went out to do the crusades, the people who, um, the, the tradesmen who accompanied all of the crusaders, because, you know, it wasn't just the crusaders. You have to take along with you people who can make you your weapons and people who can make your clothes or fix your clothes and people who can build your boats and build your fortresses and, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. They encountered these guilds in the Muslim world. And it occurred to them that if they all banded together, then they could demand fair pay for their work. And so when they went home, they formed guilds. And you find the early guilds coming shortly after the feudal time, the the Crusades, the first Crusades, and that's kind of (laughs) why. So when people can control... Um, their labor and the only way that can be done is if they all stand together then they can stand up to the nobleman the the one because they own one of the critical factors then they control one of the critical factors of production and there is no production without them mm-hmm. exactly that is how unions can combat corporate feudalism It's very interesting from an economic perspective, because I think a lot of people miss, and you had mentioned earlier that when you were a conservative, you thought that unions were evil, but just look at how uh, big of a part they play in economic stability. Well, that's exactly it. That's exactly what keeps us from falling back into corporate feudalism. Right. 
And if we fall into corporate feudalism, it will essentially be that the only things that we can do are, is shop at the co company store. <laughs> and the 1% will have everything, and the rest of us will have subsistence. Right. See, I'm a big fan of the Sololinsky school of thought, which included holding the right to their own standards. So what That's you right. just mentioned, what does that do for a free market? That's not a very robust range of options when you got one company running the whole show. But that's where we're headed. Hmm. So, yeah. That's exactly where we're headed, is a few people running the whole show, just as it was back in the feudal days. So, so you have the Pope at the top, and that would correspond, and Trump wants to be essentially the equivalent of the Pope. <laughs> and then you had the Pope agreeing to have certain kings and and lords certain kings and the kings then had lords that's just like um putin having certain oligarchs right you notice that uh i mean i've worked at a lot of different places and even nonprofits sometimes can take on that same structure you know like you've got your feudal lord at the very top you know yep. and then they've got like their and then they their crown directors, who they choose right underneath them and normally and... it's a pay to play mhm mm so if you look at the structure of feudal of the feudal world, and I point that out in my corporate article, you will see that it's almost identical to where we're going if we don't stand up. Yeah. So that was my call to arms about unions. Tell us about the myth of the rugged individualist. My, gra my great aunt and I had been, I don't know, John Wayne was doing a lot of movies at the time, <laughs> if you recall. Yeah. I guess I was talking to her about these rugged individualists who had um, pioneered and settled Colorado, and she just laughed. And she she told me stories about how um, when it used to be that people would come in, newcomers would come into a, a city, um, a town. At the time, you really couldn't call them a city or a town. It was more like a settlement. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the settlement would get together and help them um, and build them a house and give them enough provisions to survive. And then they would watch out for each other um, to make sure everybody was eating and everybody had what they needed. Then my grandmother told me about how when it would, one farmer couldn't harvest his, his own farm, but if you get eight or nine people together and they go from farm to farm to farm to farm, pretty soon all of the uh, farms have been harvested, and then you have a big party, and you call it a hoedown because all the crops are in and you can put your hoe down. Mm. That's where the hoedown came from. Anyway, getting back to the rugged individualist, so I was, my, my great aunt just laughed at me and was telling me the stories about how the people would watch out for each other and how it was all community, and she said, you know... <laughs> There might have been some rugged individualists back in those days, but rugged individualists tended not to have descendants. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? She said, they died first. Of course. So there you go. Or either that or they were so rugged individualists that they didn't have a family. <laughs> but they just tended not to have descendants. Too hardcore. They are not the ones who settled the West. The people who settled the West were the people who most believed in community. Mm -hmm. and, my, and then she told me about how in the early days of Denver, and she was there because 
um, her dad was a state senator and then in 1900 was Secretary of State, so she was there. The congregations of various denominations would get together and first, and they built a Jewish synagogue together and they built Catholic Church and they built Trinity Methodist Church and they built um, the Episcopalian Church and a Presbyterian Church and I don't know which other ones because they believed that each person deserved, needed the place to worship that was appropriate to them. It was like the original interfaith alliance. That's correct. And my grandmother told me that water was the most precious resource even back then, even more precious than gold or silver. Hmm. And it was the rights to that water were very valuable. And many of the settlers, many of the early people, surrendered their water rights or donated their water rights to get the funds to build the school, original schools. Interesting. And this is one reason why we can't give them over to the Koch brothers. Oh, no. There were too many. There's too much invested, too much invested in our schools, in our roads, in, uh, in everything that is community to hand it over and let people, other people, and let oligarchs become rich off of it. Too much invested. Absolutely. So I have come out of retirement and pick, I'm picking up where I left off. Well, I'm glad you are. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. I just wish people would think of donating to my campaign. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that's another reason I wanted to have you on. So uh, can we get your website one more time? Julia for CO State Senate30.com. All right. My Facebook is Julia for CO SD30. So I have a space after Julia, a space after four, and a space after CO. All right. We will check it out for sure. Yeah, and people can go there and see what I'm up to, and I'm going to start contributing to it more now that I'm back from training and Joel has beat us up. Yeah, um, that was great. I, I really enjoyed the P Triple C. It it was like a buffet of progressivism, you know, a little bit it, of everything. It, it was, and... it was so amazing. And of course, my hero is is Elizabeth Warren. Yes, she's magnificent. That was really bizarre, you know, because she got called in for that vote, and we were told she wasn't going to be there until like six. I thought I had another forty-five minutes, and actually, my back was killing me, so I snuck out to what I thought was kind of a mellow area. Because when Bernie had to come in earlier, he came in through a different entrance, and everybody was freaking out. They're like, "Don't go out that door, security." So I used a totally different uh, uh, exit, and then I just got this vibe. And, you know, I was just going to relax for a minute and stretch. And then I see this car pull up and I realize it's her. And there was no assistant or security. And I just kind of predicted what door she would want to come in. And I held the door open for her. And we just had this moment. And, you know, she looked at me. I think she was about to thank me. And then um, all of a sudden, you know, the event organizers found her and just ripped her away. <laughs> and they're like, this way, this way. It was so intense. But it was just so beautiful, too. Having a, You know, it's not every day I get to open the door for one of my heroes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, she's amazing. She yeah. is, and and her understanding standing of economics really resonates with me. And I feel like Elizabeth is great at keeping the focus really on the issues. She's never self indulgent. 
It's always a very communal spirit. And the thing is, when I see Bernie speak, as brilliant of an orator as he is, these people get so riled up, a lot of them. They just start chanting, Bernie, Bernie. And then he steps up and says, look, guys, it's not about me. It's about you. And the way that you see the primaries get so much more drawn out on the Democratic side. Look at how long the battle between Obama and Hillary lasted, and of course Hillary and Bernie, whereas those same two years, Trump sealed up his nomination so quickly. People fell behind McCain really, really fast. And uh, it looks like on one side, there's a lot more of a people power dynamic. And on the right, it's much more straight up, top down, authoritative strongman. We've got to do something where people are, are running to the polls because of what our community needs, as opposed to the rock star. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the people can be changed out if our issues are strong. Right, right. Um, and would they need to be changed out because we can't have... It's sort of like I've, I've watched megachurches, okay? <laughs> yeah. When the megachurch minister dies or leaves or retires, the churches shrink up. Hmm. You can't be de- personality dependent. You can't. You need the substance that makes it worth being a part of. And, uh, and I am a big, big believer in substance. Well, Julia, thank you so much for coming on. It was great having you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You take care.
Next on the line is Sarah Smith, who is a candidate for the United States House of Representatives in Washington's 9th District. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm doing really well. How are you? Good. Okay, so what um, initially got you interested in politics? So I've always been politically active. I talk a little bit about how I come from a politically active family. We're always well-informed. Uh, I helped organize walkouts, and I participated in sit-ins during the Iraq War when I was in high school. Um, I've, I've always kind of been the politically savvy friend, so my friends always come to me to talk about voting and ballots and candidates and things like that. But um, as far as politics in this sense and in this way, um, I never really intended to ever get involved in politics like this. Uh, the only reason I did is actually because somebody nominated me. I don't. I still don't know who it is. I'm actually the only candidate that doesn't know. <laughs> somebody nominated me through Brand New Congress to run for office, and we went back and forth for a while. Um, we were talking about it. I was I was a little reluctant because you know the CD wide corrupt world of politics is a real thing, and I was very hesitant. Um, but after chatting it over with my husband, with my family, um, we decided to say yes. And they were like, perfect, we'll get you on board and we'll talk to you more about what it's like to be an actual politician and not just an activist. And so that was kind of how this whole thing started. <laughs> wow. Well, I wonder yeah. if anyone else got into it through like a, a sort of a secret Santa of democracy. <laughs> yeah, it kind of was like that, actually. It's not too far off. Um, I know any of the brand new Congress and Justice, uh, Justice Democrats candidates had to be nominated by someone else, so you couldn't nominate yourself. Right. Um, they had to be nominated by someone in their community. I know that every other candidate knows who nominated them. I'm the only one on the slate that doesn't know, and I still kind of don't want to. <laughs> um, I feel like it makes me work harder because it could have been anybody. Mm. <laughs> and I, just, I feel like it makes me work harder. It makes every person I interact with significant in some way. Um, maybe that's naive, but, you know, keeps me positive and upbeat and it keeps me caring. So No, I love it. I mean, that's the whole spirit, <laughs> I think, of civil service is that you're just there to serve, not one specific interest or exactly. faction. Wow. Exactly. And it's I'm, I'm not there to serve one person who thought I could do it. I'm there to serve every single person that's in my district and consequently every single person in the country. Exactly. And so w this was kind of a ripple effect. Sorry, were you saying you showed up originally just as a volunteer? And then yes, so I jumped on their newsletter and like I was starting to get involved with a uh, brand new Congress on a volunteer on a volunteer basis. Um, <clears throat> I was trying to actually think of people to nominate through Justice Democrats for other <laughs> districts. I have some friends that are activists around the country and I have a, a wide range of friends from coast to coast. And I was going through my Rolodex trying to find other people to nominate when I got the call that someone nominated me. And it was a little surreal, but... <laughs> yeah, you never know. Well, that's the whole yeah. beauty of it. It's like ripple effect. I mean, uh, <laughs> Tom Hartman's always saying democracy is not a spectator sport, right? Exactly. You got to get out there. And I've heard so many stories of people like you who went out there. Um, you know, they just wanted to donate some of their time and some of their energy. And then people got to know you and they're like, hey, let's put you in charge. <laughs> yeah, and it's a weird feeling. <laughs> but right. I mean... The greatest thing about the progressive movement, and especially in the grass move, grassroots movement, is it's a lot of newcomers who are who are freshly charged and ready to work and are, are finally realizing what it means to not be a spectator. And we're all kind of learning together. So it actually made the process of having never been a career politician a lot less intimidating because I'm with a bunch of other people and we're learning together. We're in this together. We're all making mistakes and we're, we're having a lot of grace with each other. And it's one of the things that I really like about the grassroots movement, actually, is uh, how everyone's kind of coming into their own now with it. And I, I think it's really cool and it's really powerful to watch. 
It is, yeah. And, and so needed today. Yeah. I mean, we just oh my gosh. can't keep going as usual. You know, we need some fresh blood to renew yes. uh, those grassroots. So tell us a little bit about the part of Washington you're in. So I'm in Washington's 9th District. It covers Bellevue, Mercer Island, South Seattle, um, Federal Way, Renton, and all the way down to the north port of Tacoma. And my district is really interesting. Um, so it's on a map, it's not very big, but it takes about like an hour and a half to get from tip to tail. And it's also a, minor- a majority minority district. Mm. So white voters are in the minority. And we also have one of the largest income disparities in the entire state. So we have some of the highest, wealthiest, um, most uh, like top one percent income earners in our in our district. And we have some of the um, low. We have some of the deepest, most impoverished voters in our in our district as well. So we have a really broad range in this district, which makes it interesting. Um, it gives every every neighborhood its own feel. Um, it gives every every neighborhood its own concerns. And it's been really really interesting to see where people overlap. And one of the things that I've um, actually had the ability to figure out is what things constitute a privileged concern versus what constitutes a non-privileged concern. So it's I've learned very, very quickly that it's it's a privilege to be concerned about something like um, tar sands when you don't know if your kids are going to be able to keep going to school or if you're going to be able to keep a roof over their head. And if you don't know, you're going to be able to go to the doctor or things like that. And it's been really eye-opening for me about my district. So I really like it. It's a broad spectrum, but I, I really enjoy it. I think it makes this district very powerful. Yeah, that's an interesting contrast. <clears throat> uh, and that's really um, sort of endemic of the West, too. That's something yeah. I was trying to tell people when I was at the PCCC in Washington that um, uh, a lot of people forget how sprawling the West is. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I grew up as a kid watching like cop shows where they'd be like, oh, you cross the state line with a minor or you cross the state line with alcohol. I'm like, how can you even do that? Doesn't that take like yeah, days? Where are you? Um, so, like yeah, I mean, Los Angeles is, is a lot like that. It's such a, a mishmash, both culturally and uh, and geologically. So, yeah. yeah, good on you for um, for getting out there and representing such a, a diverse area. Yeah, it's fun. And I mean, you know, I, I like to think that my perspective is is shaped a lot by what I grew up with. And I actually grew up for the, the start of my life. I grew up in, in a very privileged household. I, I, I know that now as an adult, my parents never let us forget it. My dad always made us. It didn't matter how much money my family or my parents made. It, it mattered that we got jobs and he made sure I was working by the time I was 15. Um, <clears throat> but I, I grew up with a lot of privilege in my life. And then when the market crashed, uh, I actually wound up having to figure out what to do with myself at 17 and I had to learn to be an adult overnight essentially and find a place to live and then I spent some time couch surfing actually I was technically homeless um, for a couple of weeks so I've experienced a broad range of income disparity I had to build up my my life again uh, twice at least because I just I had to go back to school Uh, I had to take an income cut to go back to school Um, suffered after the after the uh, recession took everything from my family it was it's given me a very broad perspective on what it's like to live as someone with a lot of income and what it's like to live as someone with no income. And it's scary. And it's I, I like to think that that makes me a stronger voice for the people here because I've, I've lived in both sides of the spectrum. And I think that's important. Sure. It brings a lot of insight, I think, to the office to be able to yeah. have an understanding of both worlds. And so exactly. what office are you running for? I'm running for House of Representatives for District 9. And uh, so how's the campaign been going so far? It's actually been going really well. Um, we are uh, we were just endorsed by Olympia DSA, 
which is really awesome. And we've got a couple of uh, interviews that are we're doing for more endorsements, but we're picking up pretty quick. Um, we have done phone bankings every week. We're canvassing every weekend. We have two shifts going for canvassing. I think we're hitting about almost 3,000 doors a month. Wow. Um, yeah, we're hitting, we're knocking a lot of doors. Our volunteers are putting in a lot of legwork, but we're, uh, we're, we're gaining a lot of traction. I've got an interview in downtown Seattle on Thursday. Um, I just did another podcast on Saturday. Um, and then I've got a couple of other things coming up and we're trying to get some events scheduled with uh, a few other candidates in the area and some of my sister justice Democrats candidates too. So we're, we're moving pretty fast actually. <laughs> Very good. That's what I like to yeah. hear. Did you want to tell us a little bit about who you're running against? Sure, of course. I'd love to. Who doesn't want to talk about their opponent? <laughs> um, so I'm actually running against Adam Smith, and we're not related. But fun fact, fun couple of facts, actually. Uh, his wife's name is Sarah. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, we both have bad hips. So he had double hip surgery. I've had surgery on one, and I'm having physical therapy on the other. So we both have bad hips, and his wife's name, his wife and I share a name. Wow. Um, it's like a parallel yeah. reality. Exactly. <laughs> we, we don't want to. We don't want to bring too much change all at once to the night. We want to gradually <laughs> ease people into it. I feel like. Um, so he is. He's been in office for 22 years now, and he is notoriously slow to the game. He does not like taking a stance on anything he waits for everybody else to risk it and then when he's being held to the fire that's when he makes a decision so he waits till the last possible moment um the only area that he doesn't is coincidentally war and uh military he's on the armed forces committee and he takes millions of dollars every year from companies like Northrop Grumman, Lockheed uh, Martin, General Dynamics. He's very entrenched in the war industry. And it actually took pressure from our campaign to get him to co-sign uh, HConrad 81, which was to basically say the AUMF doesn't extend to Yemen. Uh, um, and it took my campaign calling his office, emailing him, calling him out on social media. Um, we hammered him to get him to co-sign it. And it's because it loses, his, uh, loses the people money. And right now, his donors just saw a $10 billion increase in revenue and sales as soon as we started attacking Syria. Hmm. So I have a strong suspicion he will not fight any attempts to get us involved in another war in Syria. And he's actually come out and said, um, after the attacks in Niger, he's actually he said that uh, he doesn't actually think that um, um, Amer uh, what is it? Uh, American imperialism is necessarily a bad thing. Oh, and I wish I could find exactly where I found where that quote was, but I, he said it and it stuck to me and I've been Googling like crazy to find the article again. But um, it's just, he's all about protecting American monarchy is pretty much what it is or, or American imperialism is what it is. And he's, he's very much in bed with them. He doesn't fight for anything. He says he supports things like Medicare for all. And that's great. That's, Good for you. So he's kind of doing this progressive thing, right? Where he uh, he says he supports all these things, but there's a difference between supporting something and being willing to put everything on the line to fight for it. Exactly. And that's where he and I differ. I support Medicare for all to the point that I'm willing to uproot my entire normal, boring life and go fight for it in the streets and fight against him and take a stand and do something big and scary in order to get it passed. And he's not willing to do that. He he very much so prefers to sit in his office wait for everyone else to make decisions uh, and then kind of wait and hang back until he figures out how, uh, what's going to be popular or what's going to keep people complacent. The phrase I've been using a lot is he weaponizes complacency. Mm. And I think that that's the worst kind. Wow. Oh yeah. 
All right. Well, thanks for breaking that down for us. Of course. Anytime. <clears throat> Gotten good at it. <laughs> um, so it sounds like you have a really robust platform to take on income inequality. Would you uh, tell us about your idea for creating a million jobs for disadvantaged youth? Yes. I love the youth jobs program. I also love the federal jobs guarantee. Um, I think Thurgood Marshall was completely correct when he said the 14th Amendment applies to jobs. Really, what I think is most important is that we're we're taking strides to bridge the income inequality, income inequality gap in the country. And we've already seen that corporations can't be trusted to do it on their own. One of the best ways that we can force that to happen is by adding in the government as a competitor in the market, because then the government sets the wages, kind of like we do with the post office. So we have the post office, but you also have things like um, uh, UPS, FedEx, DHL, and the post office keeping its rates low is what forces them to keep their rates low as well. Sure. And it also employs Americans. So doing something and having the government be a competitor in the public sector, I think, is extremely beneficial to wages. It's extremely beneficial to people. It's extremely beneficial to fighting against income inequality. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. But I think the specific question you're asking for is about kids and youths and, and disadvantaged kids and disadvantaged youths who are struggling to find employment, struggling to learn trades, things like that. Mm -hmm. So. One of the things that I strongly support is I strongly support a, uh, a grant system being provided in these areas that can help connect uh, union workers and seniors and juniors in high schools. And it can also help fund trade programs. It can bring back trade programs to schools, uh, help with job placement programs for youth, and help with wage protection for youth as well. So I think it's really important that we start giving kids a chance in the most disadvantaged areas to build up their lives because the cycle of poverty crushes families for generations and this is an area of opportunity where we can crush that cycle without putting the whole burden on the lower income families to do it on their own and i think the best place to start is with kids in high school help them find jobs help them feed their families help them feed themselves and then equip them and arm them with a trade that they can take into the real world once they graduate excellent yeah i am so disgusted at the way we just leave kids hanging I know, especially in lower income areas, too. It's the worst, especially in communities of color. Um, it's it's that's why you have high crime rates in some of these lower income areas is because these kids just get forgotten. No kid wants to turn to crime. No kid wants to join a gang. No kid wants to get involved in any of that stuff. But when you don't have the ability to provide for yourself and your family, you have no you can't see a future when you don't have any other opportunity and you don't have any other chance. You do what you have to do to survive. And it's not good enough that we just let people survive. We have to put them in an environment that's going to help them thrive. Yep. That's the school to prison pipeline. You know, exactly. They're, they're uh, inherently connected, you know, criminal yes, they justice are. and education reform. So exactly. And it's that holistic idea about all of it and seeing how all of it's connected is so critical, especially right now with talking about the progressive movement. Uh, we can't talk about ending the school to prison pipeline and then turn around and ignore the income inequality issue that disproportionately affects people in communities of color and low income areas, because that's where the prison, the school to prison pipeline starts is in those communities because of those circumstances. But if we can help kids get involved in programs, if we can equip them with skills, if we can provide them with jobs through the summer, if we can provide them with part-time employment through the school year, that's going to change the entire course and trajectory of their life and turn it away from the school to prison pipeline, which is going to subsequently mean that we're paying less for kids in prison, for people in prison, for youth jails. Uh, we're able to attack the for-profit prison model. We're able to actually focus on things like lowering recidivism rates. Um, it's it's a spiral effect, right? It's It all circles around and it, it all connects to itself. And I think it's really important that when we talk about policy, 
we connect it with other policy that also integrates crucially into the main artery that makes that policy effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and just to go back a little bit, I think you made a brilliant point about how the government actually can enable more competition. And it's unfortunate mm-hmm. a lot of people don't think about, um, well, it's often seen as like government and free market or somehow you know, mutually <laughs> exclusive when, yeah. um, like you look at unions, a lot of people might say, oh, who cares about unions? I don't work a union job. But the fact is, is that just there being unions, they're setting a standard that everyone benefits from. Exactly. That's a huge thing that I keep. Uh, I actually work in a mechanic shop with a, a bunch of guys who um, they've some of them have worked for unions and some of them have, have opted to vote out some of the unions in my shop in particular. I was kind of disappointed because the uh, the guys ended they voted to get rid of the union in our shop, which I respect their decision. It was a unanimous Democratic vote. I completely respect their choice. Hmm. But I, I think that they're it's harder for them to realize that they're benefiting by having certain flat rate hours paid a certain way, by getting time off, by having their their hours limited. These are all ways that people are benefiting. Um, When the teachers' unions are striking and they're they're fighting for wage increases, that's for all teachers, not just unionized teachers. So so teachers that aren't involved in these unions or people that aren't involved in these unions are still seeing the benefits from these unions. And that's what's so important to try and recognize is, is the government can play a role in this in this free market concept that we have going, they're inextricably linked. They, they can operate. They're meant to operate together. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, by having the government step in, we do a lot of things. So you see it. Part- I always bring up the military example where we it's particularly bad with the military, where we privatize so much of it. We send so much of our work to private contracting companies. We spend about um, 60% of our military budget on private contractors, when instead we could be turning around and spending that money on our own soldiers, on recruiting efforts, on providing better benefits, more incentives for people to join the military instead of going to these private contractors. We can do a similar thing with other projects, too. We can do things with public works projects, where instead of contracting out the work, why doesn't the government just hire directly? and pay a competitive wage, pay for good benefits. They don't need to worry about paying for for profit or anything like that because it's the government. They can pay them a livable wage and not have to worry about too much overhead or anything like that. They're not looking to make a dime on their own money, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But then we create a new standard when we do that. When the government steps in and has a role and has a a share in this free market and they're paying $15 an hour, let's say, and they provide you with a with retirement with retirement benefits, with uh, paid time off, with six weeks of vacation. More people are going to be applying for those jobs, which means that if those other companies want those skilled workers, they're going to have to at least offer what the government's offering, which raises the standard, and that bridges that income inequality gap. Uh, it's it's proven. It's a proven method. We see it every day. I bring it up all the time with the post office. Uh, anywhere where you see the government having a competitive hand in the in the market. That's where you see things like wage guarantees where, with uh, better benefits. It's where you see things for where people are having health care, where people get retirement, where people have more paid time off, a better standard of living. Or it all exists in those industries where the government is also a competitor. There's no reason the government can't be competitive in, in all these markets. We're already paying contracting companies millions and billions of dollars to do this stuff. Definitely. How about instead of paying them, we pay our people? Right. Well, I'm so glad you brought up the military. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when friends of mine were actually enlisting. Uh, I knew one fellow who joined the Navy because he wanted to be a professional chef. And the yeah. idea was you get to cook on the boat. And if the captain likes your cooking, you are well on your way to a great career. And, you know, that's just one of the most tragic things about the corporate takeover. 
and and just this rise of the corporate state that I've seen during my lifetime grow exponentially is that, you know, like you said, that's all being given to contractors now. Yep. And a lot of them aren't even Americans. Exactly. And that's why when people complain about, about unemployment rates or not having jobs, most people want to work. When you see families on welfare, my, my older sister was on food stamps for the longest time because her husband lost his job and he lost his contracting business. He was making minimum wage. They had two young kids. They were living with my parents. They were on food stamps. She said she didn't want to be on them. And the second that she could get off of them, they did because nobody wants to do that. But you have to eat. You have to survive. People would rather work. So what better way to do that than for the government to step in and give them that work that they really would rather be doing? Yep. Hey, it worked before. New I've deal. It worked before, exactly. I mean, you know, we saw it already under FDR. We've seen this before. This is, it gets wrapped up in those talking points from, from in particular, the very conservative right saying that that's not true or that'll never work. Uh, we talked about the word deficit like it's a bad thing, um, but I just read an article where a, a gentleman out of the Sanders Institute called it. He's like, don't call it a deficit because that's not accurate. It's the non-government surplus. And I'm like, oh, that's such a good phrase. Um, but people think the word surplus is good and deficit is bad, but that's just not fundamentally not true. Um, we can be taking this money that we're spending. We can be spending it on our own people. We can be reinvesting in ourselves in a positive way that's going to affect and attack that non-government surplus. Um, that's going to bring it down. That's going to force corporations to match the government. And it, it can create a positive, better world for all of us. And the power and the opportunity to do it is there, but we don't have representatives that are willing to take that risk and take that leap and anger their donors. And that's what's awesome about candidates that don't have donors like that, that don't have deep pocketed donors or take corporate money. We can do that. We can put ourselves out there and stand on the line and fight for these things and get people working at a livable wage with good jobs and access to training. Right on. So uh, being in Washington, can you speak to the issue of tribal first people's rights? Tribal and first people's rights are because I'm not a I, because I'm not an indigenous person. It is it is a very sensitive subject um, because I think that ultimately what happened was we had an agreement with these with the indigenous people who had land, who had rights, who who had water rights, who had access to. Uh, you see it with with the Dakota Access Pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> And now the government is trying to circumvent that agreement and just do things like take their land for corporate benefits and move pipelines through their land, destroy it, take over their water rights, impede the areas that they use up here particularly for fishing. Um, so we have companies that are building across uh, native waterways and they aren't taking precautions to help keep the salmon flowing through there. So these tribes that have water rights to those areas to go fish during the fishing season aren't getting any salmon because this company has put, um, it put, it put blockades across their rivers. And so the salmon can't get through. And it's, it's things like that that we're seeing violated all the time. Um, Native women are going missing, and we're not doing anything about it. Education is terrible on these reservations, and we're not doing anything about it. Um, health, access to health care, access to, to legal information, is, it's all horrible. It, the income inequality gap is probably the worst between um, on, a lot of these, on a lot of the reservations and a lot of the tribal lands. And we're not doing anything about it, but then we're turning around and taking their land and taking their water and telling them they have to give it to us. We really have to cultivate a better partnership with indigenous people and with these tribes. We have to provide for them the same way we'd provide for everyone else and also respect their autonomy. If we made an agreement with them, we have to honor that agreement. It, you're only as good as your word, right? And 
by continually going back on our word, by continually worsening their quality of life, by not helping them increase their quality of life, by not helping to honor this contract we came to with them, we're not just hurting these tribes are not just hurting the indigenous people. We're hurting our own pride. We're hurting, we're hurting our own integrity. We're hurting ourselves. We're hurting the very fabric of what our nation was intended to do. And that's how, how deeply I feel that. So I'm still working with a lot of indigenous groups to isolate a lot of their biggest concerns. But I think overall, in the larger scope of things, what we can do is we can care. We can care enough to honor our contract. We can care enough to help the, the indigenous tribes. We can care enough to to stick to the agreement that we made, we can care enough to to build up the, their quality of life, to build up our tribes, to make them vibrant, to restore them, to give them back what we took from them. Well, thank you for shedding light on such an important subject. Of course. <laughs> and what's the best way for listeners to keep up with you? Um, so the best way is through my website is votesarahsmith.com. It's there with an H, all one word. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at sarahsmith2018, and I'm on Facebook as sarahsmithwa09. And those are going to be the best ways to keep up with me. We keep my interviews going. We update my endorsements. Um, we update articles that we find. We're, we're pretty active on all of our social media, so that's the best way to find us. Excellent. So votesarahsmith.com. Yep. I hope uh, people check out your page and... Uh... And, and support the excellent work that you're doing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, this was awesome. I really appreciate your time and everybody listening.